Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The biggest thing was understanding how life operates below the photic zone. So below a thousand meters, there's no longer a trace of sunlight but you still have this incredible biodiversity down there, all these fishes and all of these invertebrate animals and it's all these things. And um, they have to communicate, find each other, find prey, evade predators. Um, and they mainly do that with bioluminescence, the biological production of light. And so we were trying to understand the mystery of how life operates and the function of bioluminescence in those extremely dark, cold, waters, right? But we were also looking for new species. We were looking for adaptations that occur in the deep, producing, for example, we'll talk about discoveries later, but some of the um, most extremely dark or black biological material on Earth. Well, we found so many things. We're looking for, um, we were looking at abundances of animals that may uh, and health of animals, how that may have been tied to the deep water horizon spill. And lastly, um, looking at potentially if we could find the giant squid, which had uh, never been recorded live or, or observed living in the Gulf of Mexico prior to this. I'm Lori Swigert, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. One of our most popular guests ever was Dr. Lori Swikert. She told us about fish vision. She's done a tremendous amount of research on the way fish see. And as anglers, we can take that information. We can understand it a little bit better and it can help us to catch more fish. It can help us to understand what's going on. Maybe it helps us to understand why we're not catching as many fish as we think we should. Um, and I love that conversation. She knows so much about fish biology. And um, so we have her back today and I'm really excited about it because she just did this big research trip um, out in the Gulf of Mexico in the very 
deep, deep, deep water in the Gulf of Mexico. And she left out of Mississippi. She goes out in front of Venice, Louisiana, basically in a, in an area that I'm familiar with. It is a fish factory and they start doing all kinds of studies on really deep water, like 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 feet deep. I don't know, really deep. Um, and one of the things that was uncovered was the second, um, giant squid sighting on video. One has, we've, we've, we've got video of one off of the coast of Japan and this, this expedition, uh, has number two and it's number one with an ROV, a remote operated vehicle, um, called the Medusa. And, uh, she tells us all about the giant squid, what we know about the giant squid. And unfortunately there's way more that we don't know about the giant squid. Uh, not many have been seen only, only a couple of seen ever in, in, uh, in the deep part of the ocean. And, um, there's history, you know, throughout Moby Dick, throughout all kinds of literature about the giant squid, but it's just a mystery, but it's not a mystery. Like something like Bigfoot where, you know, there's tons of sightings, there's tons of, of, um, of history and legend and, and, and people swear that they've seen one, but we really don't have conclusive evidence. And, and we do have that for, for the giant squid. And so we talk about the difference there and what that means and, you know, what the future of study for the giant squid might look like. And, and it's just a very interesting conversation. It goes into all different kinds of, of stuff that they, they studied and learned on that ship. So I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lori Swikert. And uh, here we go. All right, Lori, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. Well, you've had some changes in your life. Congratulations on your new son. Thank you. Yeah. My son was born, a John, um, and I've, I've got a new position, a professorship at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So just a lot of change since the last time we spoke, a lot of good things. Yeah. Well, that's great. And um, so we, you had a baby during, during COVID. Um, what was that like? Did you... I was obviously in the hospital, I guess. You went to the hospital? Yes. So he was born in April. And this was the time where COVID was really peaking and some hospitals across the country were making decisions to only allow birth mothers in and not the partners. It was a really scary time. and um, But luckily it worked out and my husband got to be there for oh, the good. rest of my son. That's good. Um, and it has been fantastic it has been life-changing yeah well those are three of three of the most important days in my life were were uh being there for the birth of of my children so that that's good that's good that's uh that's awesome yeah i've got three mine are mine are a little older than yours though i've got a a 23 a 21 and a 17 so we're a little bit a little bit ahead but i do remember oh, those yeah. days very well which is like which is like we're teething we're cutting molars it's, yeah. it's rough. <laughs> So with that, you've still been able to um, do some uh, trips, like a, not just trips, but like scientific excursions. You were telling me about um, your recent Gulf of Mexico trip because I'm super interested in this because, um, first of all, I want to know what you were doing out there. Why don't you tell, tell, tell us about what you were doing on this, on this latest excursion that you went on? Yeah, so... I got the incredible opportunity to go on a research expedition into the Gulf of Mexico. 
And, um, you know, people can study marine biology their whole lives and only get an opportunity to do this maybe once or twice or maybe never. So kind of won the, won the golden ticket and, and uh, got to go out onto a research vessel into the Gulf of Mexico to study life in the deep sea, to ask questions about the deepest waters of the Gulf of Mexico that we don't already know. And, and so where does that leave out of? So it was Gulfport, Mississippi. Okay. So I drove from South Florida all the way to Gulfport. Um, and then there was, uh, the port there and we went out on a 135 foot research vessel, um, steaming out past all the oil rigs, the oil fields, which Mm -hmm. was absolutely amazing. Something I'd never seen. And, um, steaming out just about a hundred, a hundred miles, 200 miles South of new Orleans is about the research area. Okay. Well, we yeah, fished yeah. there quite a bit, you know, that's, that's, that's in range of all the guys in, in, uh, Venice, Louisiana, the sport fish, um, uh, fleet there, they'll go hundred, 150. I mean, I'm sure some people are going 200 miles out there. Um, so look somewhat familiar with that area and, and what you find there might scare me. Cause I have, I have been there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, I want to know what lives there deep down there. Oh my God. I want to go back just purely as an angler because I saw things, right? Um, Miles and miles of sargassum floats, uh, baby triple tail, huge triple tail. I mean, and I'm there doing the science and I, and I see all these big pelagics come by and it was, it was amazing. So I understand why people go out there to do that. Right. It's incredible. I mean, that is the fish factory. The Mississippi river flows right in there and, Mm. and hits the Gulf of Mexico and it, it creates a, an incredible in shore fish factory one like i've never seen before i mean the amount of redfish and sea trout there is just unbelievable and then as you go offshore it doesn't dis- disappoint there either like the tuna the marlin the uh swordfish it's all it's all happening it's it's really good up there that's cool that's and i got to hear some of those fishing stories from the crew on the ship the captain and crew um they're just the salt of the earth gentlemen who had lived there in coastal louisiana and mississippi their whole lives and had so many great fishing stories to tell but um yeah so i got to go out on this research vessel and it was one of a science party of 12 marine biologists really representing some of the most kind of elite marine biologists on the planet studying all different aspects of what might be going on in um, the deepest waters of the Gulf of Mexico. This was funded by NOAA. And um, the point, it was very exploratory. We had a couple of ideas of what we might find. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what were there objectives? Let's talk about those ideas that uh, the couple of ideas that you thought you might find as you're leaving the dock, you know, cause I, I there's gotta be some sort of kind of objective in, in taking 12 marine biologists out there. Like what, what were those couple of things that you were hoping to find or that the team was hoping to find? Great question. Oh my goodness. The biggest thing was understanding how life operates below the photic zone. So below a thousand meters, there's no longer a trace of sunlight but you still have this incredible biodiversity down there, all these fishes and all of these invertebrate animals and all these things. And um, they have to communicate, find each other, find prey, evade predators. um, And they mainly do that with bioluminescence, the biological production of light. And so we were trying to understand 
the mystery of how life operates and the function of bioluminescence in those extremely dark, cold waters, right? Mm -hmm. But we were also looking for new species. We were looking for adaptations that occur in the deep, producing, for example, we'll talk about discoveries later, but some of the um, most extremely dark or black biological material on earth. Well, we found so many things. We're looking for, um, we were looking at abundances of animals that may, uh, and health of animals, how that may have been tied to the deep water horizon spill. And lastly, um, looking at potentially if we could find the giant squid, which had, uh, never been recorded live or or observed living in the Gulf of Mexico prior to this to wow. this trip. So it was it was incredible, and it was incredible. Trip. So when you yeah. see all these all these reports of giant squid, um, where are those coming from? Where is it something that has been documented lots of times before? Okay, so yeah, so we think about the giant squid being one of the most um, right unbelievable animals on Earth. Um, and they have been documented from washing up ashore dead, mm -hmm. right? And then we'll mm -hmm. find their bodies or we'll find limbs or, or so forth. Um, but only one other time in history have we observed them and their living behavior. And that was in waters off of Japan. Okay. Um, I believe from a manned submarine that was on the, on the hunt for these animals and did observe one and videoed it for a short time. But mainly we only knew it existed from washing up um, ashore. Yeah, man, that is a, that is. That is a crazy species. I want to talk to you a lot more about that, but let's let's just kind of uh, just kind of walk through the trip because it sounds like you know you're going out with these objectives. You're going to go 200 miles out, and um, like like how does the how does the trip kind of unfold? It's a good question, right? So the science leader who has a ton of responsibility on his shoulders, who was Dr. Sanka Johnson of Duke University, he gets us all together. He assigns us our birthing, which at the time I was just a, a postdoc. I wasn't yet a professor. So I got put down in the <laughs> belly of the ship right by the engine, which was great. Thanks, Anka. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we all get assigned our birthing. We, we learn the safety protocols or hear the spiel from the captain. You meet the, you meet the chef in the, in the galley and you want to make friends with yeah, him. Because be nice to him. <laughs> He determines your fate the rest of the trip. And, and then you begin, the science begins. And everyone talks about their objectives, um, gets their equipment out, and it's time to steam to the different locations where we need to start collecting data. Okay. And then yeah. um, what about the equipment that you're using? As you're, you know, you have a lot of different objectives there. What, I mean, I would, I would assume that there's a big array of equipment there. Some maybe you were familiar with, maybe some new stuff. What was, uh, what was, what were these people prepared with? Okay. Some of the small stuff you would expect are like bench top microscopes, um, and all, all kinds of things like that. But there were three major methods employed on the ship. Because if you think about how vast the deep sea is, um, and actually what we call biomass, or the abundance of animals, the amount of life down there, it's not very dense per unit area. It's a huge area. And so it's hard to, to explore that, right? Because it's hard to know where the animals are. It's hard to, 
to get down there in a safe way and collect data. And so we needed to employ three pretty amazing pieces of technology. The first was um, an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, an unmanned submarine. Mm-hmm. It's tethered to the ship. It gets deployed and goes down thousands of meters. And there's approximately three feet in a meter. So you can imagine these incredible depths. Um, and we motor around with that instrument, taking video, looking for life. And it actually has a, a suction arms and we can capture these deep sea animals and return them to mm. the surface. That's the first technology. The second was a giant um, Tucker trawl net, about a 12 by 12 foot net on, you think about on a winch of metal cable that we deploy into the ocean. Again, I think the max depth we did there was about 1500 meters. Um, And we tow tow that for hours at a time and then bring the net up and it is funneled a 12 foot span net. And it might be a little larger than that. I don't actually have the the dimensions on me, but it funnels all the life into a little tube at the end. So now we have, we have captured animals by sampling the water and the very last technology, which um, I'll expand on more when we talk about the giant squid, but was developed by Edith Witter, Dr. Edith Witter, and uh, Nathan Robinson, Dr. Nathan Robinson. And they deployed this thing called the Medusa, which is kind of the newest technology for, for this kind of research. And it's remotely deployed. So we, we dropped off this insanely expensive piece of equipment <laughs> and steamed away, believing that the buoy with the transponder would stay attached to it. And it is kind of silently and, and remotely sensing, videoing, um, the surrounding surrounding life. And it's actually, we put in a, a lure to try to bring in animals to that silent instrument. And it it changed everything. What, and is what, why we have seen this. What does the lure look like? What kind of lure? Good question, right? <laughs> so this is the deal. Um, so the lure of the Medusa, which I want you to picture as a box, uh, a frame that has a camera on it, a low light camera and a lure. And what the lure is, is essentially a ring of lights that glow in succession over and over and over. I want you to imagine um, just the dots of light going around a wreath over and over and over. And what this is, is a mimic of what a naturally occurring bioluminescence behavior is. There are jellyfish, I think the North American jellyfish, that when attacked, does this glowing in a circle, okay, in nature. And the reason it starts to glow when it gets attacked is it's because it's trying to tell bigger predators from far away, hey, I'm getting eaten, come over here and eat the thing that's eating me. Okay. It's called a a burglar alarm. So Dr. Edith Witter, who's had all these incredible experiences, one of the first um, and most amazing women uh, oceanographers, she has seen this phenomenon in nature and she had the idea, what if I put a lure that looks like a jellyfish being attacked to the Medusa and send it down thousands of meters, what's gonna happen? Well, we had a very large predator come to that lure thinking there was a fish or something, a tasty snack in the area. And it, 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 it again, it changed everything. Like what was the very large predator? The giant squid. That was it? it was, That's what brought it that in? That was it. That's wow. what brought it in. So um, what's amazing 
This is what you have to realize. There are ROVs and probably manned submarines being used in the Gulf of Mexico all the time for technology, finding artifacts of sunken ships, um, for, for studying biology. And, and guess how many times we've seen the giant squid with an ROV? Well, zero in, zero. in, in the Gulf of Mexico. You already said that. So how did they see it in Japan if so it wasn't why? with an ROV? Um, um, in, in Japan, they, um, they came across this animal and I don't know exactly how they, how they, how they got it to kind of stay in the frame. I have to look into that more. There's video on YouTube. That's amazing. Um, but I will say for, for, in terms of the, it's not, it's not the Japan versus the Gulf of Mexico. thing. it's the use of technology that right. made all the difference. Right. But that's what the I was wondering about is like, if they, if they saw it, was it with an ROV or was it with some other type of camera or, or technology? It was with a manned submarine. Oh, okay. All right. And I think they basically snuck up on the animal. This is how they were able to do it. And this was the problem with using ROVs for looking for giant squid in the Gulf of Mexico. They're loud. They have a lot of lights on them. And so despite that there's been probably thousands of deployments looking all around, the squids are smart and they're fast and they have big eyes. And so they've never laid, let us get into their view. They just zoomed off. But, the, but within like the third deployment of this new technology that was silent and looked natural, we were able to see the giant squid. So yeah. it was, so it was brilliant. That's yeah. cool. So how is it silent? Like what, what new technology, um, like these things were loud and now this one's silent. What, what changed there? So the ROV has motors on it and propellers and these bright lights. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, motoring around down there. So you have the buzz of all of that. Right. Whereas the Medusa, it's just passively floating. Oh, and you're it pulling it with the boat, with the main ship. Um, the Medusa was remotely deployed. So it's just floating with the oh, oh, okay. So it's totally silent. So it's totally silent. So that could be one factor, but it seems like if that was the factor, you guys would have seen lots of giant squid on this trip, right? So you saw some, what are, what do you think? Why, why is it that we don't see them? I mean, besides the fact that what you just covered is, you know, the, the technology that we're using is loud. It's, it's kind of probably super cumbersome for this, this type of thing. The squids are real fast, all of that stuff. But it seems like there'd be something else too. Like we're, we're, we're obviously not doing something right. Like if you go out there and, you know, is it take, take for example, the, the, the early days of permit fishing, you would see them, but almost nobody was catching them. And then somebody figures out like, okay, well we have to do it this way. And then it becomes something that is, that is happening regularly or early days of bone fishing where a, a fly was developed. And now it's like, we were trying to fish them on the surface. Now we fish them on the bottom and you start catching them. So hopefully scientists will kind of figure out like what it is about the giant squid. And of course you got to see a couple and then you see maybe a couple more, but in your opinion, what do you think, what do you think the big, big challenging factor of finding these animals is, or do we even know? This, that's such a great line of thinking. It's a great question. Um, beyond the fact that we've been using loud, cumbersome things to try to find them, I think the biggest thing is that they're not surface dwelling animals, as far as we know. They're, they're, they live in the deep sea and they thrive in the deep sea. And um, 
the fact that maybe they're not surfacing very often is we just wouldn't get the opportunity to know where they are or how they even exist. Um, uh, and so, but they have been seen in the, in the historical past. You've yeah. seen these reports from fishermen saying there be monsters out there, right. mermaids or whatever. I'm sure they've been seen in and nature. The Kraken, like tame no the Kraken. Isn't, isn't that <laughs> like in all the old, old, like Moby Dick and all of that, isn't that, and they were talking about the Kraken and, and it would take ships down. And I mean, you know, when you, when you hear some, a legend like that, that sticks around, it's like, there's gotta be something to it. Like, and then, then you hear about like sperm whales and they have the, the scars on there that, that obviously look just like a giant squid. Like, what do you, is that, is there something to that? Like, are they, are they really attacking those, those large animals and maybe they go up and breach or something and, and fishermen see this and like, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be something to it. It 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 goes through history. I mean, you could say the same thing about Bigfoot, I guess. Like people have said they've seen Bigfoot like creatures, but nobody's ever caught one, right? So is it is there really something to it or is it just this legend? I think there's something to it. I think that's exactly it. A paper came out just after our trip from one in the science party, Dr. Heather Bracken Grissom and her colleagues that looking at sharks, um, and I don't remember what species of shark, um, but had the marks of suckers or some kind of indication that it had been attacked by large squids, very, very likely the giant squid. And so um, can you even imagine about what these size predators they're taking down? The giant squid gets up to 60 feet in length. So they're a massive animal. Um, and so I suspect maybe in, in times past, you think about how lucky you'd have to get someone has seen a giant squid wrapped around some prey hype or prey Well, item. I mean, we, we say, you know, how lucky you would get. I mean, people people made their living on the ocean and they would be gone for years at a time. They would just be out yeah. there exploring or fishing. And, and that's just where they were on the ocean way more than they were in land. They'd go sell their catch or whatever and get right back out. Um, and I'm sure people are doing that today. Uh, but I don't know. It it's just the giant squid is is interesting because it's almost like one of these things that's like it's almost like Bigfoot. Like there's this there's this mythical creature, but now we have like a couple of real pieces of evidence, like like what you just collected, what they collected off of, of Japan, and then these long tentacles and pieces of these squids that show up on a beach somewhere. And so you're like, well, it looks like it's from a squid that like, this is obviously real. We're not finding like Bigfoot's arm, you know, <laughs> you know, like we haven't found that, like that's what separates this, you know, mythical kind of legendary creature from something else that may or may not exist. Um, but still captures people's imagination just the same. Exactly. Right. So we have empirical evidence that this animal does exist. It's, it has a profound impact on the ecology of that system. Um, and we have so much to learn from that animal. If you look on YouTube, you'll see the video from Japan. And it was this, this giant squid was kind of, um, I've seen the video once, sitting there in the water column and in all its glory and just kind of hanging out for a while. And then it, it goes away passively. Because we deployed this lure, we got the first video of a, of a giant squid attack, going through an attack sequence. So what happens in the video 
is it's darkness and you see in front of you the lure going over and over and all of a sudden you see this bunch of arms they're pressed together into a single limb coming like a serpent like from the side and um towards the lure and the animal goes away and comes back and very cautious very smart animal and all of a sudden when it decides it gets brave enough to attack the arms of this animal open up and because um open up and encapsulate the lure because it's trying to again catch a potential animal that's feeding on that on the that jellyfish right that lure and once it realizes that it uh has not there's no animal there retreats it sucks those arms together and explodes out of frame and um scientists can now build what's called an ethogram a graphical representation of a sequence of behavior um for the first time to understand this uh predation from the giant squid so Needless to say, wow. I'm super passionate about it. Yeah, miracle. no, but what what's interesting yeah. is is the way that you you describe that squid coming into the lure. Now, would that be um, obviously we we study smaller squid? Um, is that the same kind of thing, but just larger? Is that how they attack what they're what they're going to eat eat like squid that we can see on the regular basis? Like, is that how they also are attacking, or is there something different? That's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know the specifics of that. And so I wouldn't want to say wrong, but what I can say is that the broad anatomy of a, of a small squid versus giant squid is the same. And what that means is that, um, if you think about a squid you use for bait, cause that's the first time mm-hmm. I was ever exposed yeah. to a squid, you have, there's two tentacles and the tentacles are used for reproduction. Then you have the arms which are shorter. And that's what makes up all those extensions from their, the bottom of them. And if you peel those back, you find their mouth and a a very powerful beak. Hmm. They have a beak and, um, and that is the area where they're attacking prey. So that gross anatomy is conserved between the smaller, um, the smaller prey and the larger prey, whether they do that kind of serpentine stalking, I'm not. Yeah, that's super cool. So, So just just so I'm clear and 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 understand what we know and what we don't know. So there is this creature that we're calling the giant squid. And then we have regular bait squid and probably something in between. Like I know a lot of guys are jigging for squid in California and they catch them and they're like six feet long or I mean, they're they're big, like they're pretty, pretty big. And uh, you can I mean, that that's a regular thing. You even have squid lures like and they they're they have like um, not a fish hook, but they have like a lot of these bent wires. And you jig it up and down, and the squid comes and attacks it, and they catch them. They catch really pretty, pretty big ones. I mean, I would call it a giant squid. Like it's a giant compared to the bait squid. But as far as like what you're referring to as a giant squid, and what we're talking about with let's just say bait squid, mm-hmm. is that a different? Do we think that's a different species? Like, you know, it. You know what I'm saying? Like, is is a giant squid just a large version of these, or is it a completely different species? And I know we only know so much about them, but what's the what's kind of the scientific thought on that? Um, it's it, it's different species. Okay. There are many different species of of squid, and this the giant squid is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, and so that would be like that would be the biggest the biggest one. That's, that's, um, that's cool. So how much time 
or, or what was the scene like when, when, when this is happening? First of all, are you, are you like, you're, you're exploring a part of the ocean that receives no sunlight. So it doesn't seem to make any difference whether you're doing this at night or day or, or whatever. So when, what are your research hours? It's 24 hour operations. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at the depth here that we did see the squid. So we actually saw the squid at about 600 meters depth. So there is light there, but very little. Mm -hmm. um, and because um, we were we were sampling a comparison between absolutely no light and then up into the water column where there is mm. because good science you you got to have these com comparisons to know what's what's true, um, and so twenty four hour operations absolutely brutal sleep schedules <laughs> but you collect a ton of data and basically those the trawling nets were going all day excuse me the ROV was going all day tethered to the ship. Then we pull that in and the net was going all night and the Medusa was remotely deployed floating by the ship. Um, and it was no joke. We'd have to pull in the Medusa. You think 600 meters of rope by hand, uh, <laughs> brutal, brutal We're pulling that in. Um, and then uh, You're pulling that in by then, hand, not on a, uh, not on a crane or a winch or. It was an insanely like small winch that helped us mainly just not drop the instrument to the bottom of the ocean once we unhooked the buoy. But the but but the Medusa we pulled in by hand. It was on like a like on a on a rope system, and it wasn't something that can be winched. Hmm. Whereas um whereas the nets were being was on a huge metal winch. Gotcha. You can imagine again. So so it was twenty four hour operations, and let me the, kind of set the scene for you. Remember the the Medusa was remotely picking up the squid, and we didn't know. And then a day later, we pick up the instrument, and that instrument, the video is now being processed by the science party. Dr. Nathan Robinson was actually sitting there, probably very bored, <laughs> watching tens of hours of video. And I am. This is during the day, so the ROV was being deployed, and I was in a what is a shipping container at the front of the research vessel that has six monitors and we're watching down in the deep telling the pilots of the rov where to steer the rov and um so inside the ship nathan robinson sees the squid tells dr edith witter pandemonium begins among the science party we hear it over the um the radio so now we're, we're, but we're dealing with the ROV. So we have serious science, like expensive equipment down there. We can't go in and celebrate with the team. So we're continuing. And in the moments after we hear that the giant squid was seen, the ship was struck by lightning. <laughs> we were in bad, we were in bad seas out there. Now, let me just kind of set the scene for you. We hear, we knew it was rough seas and we were in the shipping container. You can imagine this a bit nauseating, but you just power through. And, um, we hear lightning like you've never heard before. I don't know if it was because I was in a the shipping container or if it, <laughs> it just seems the like that would be a pretty loud place uh, inside of a metal <laughs> shipping container. I was, and one of the pilots was leaning against the metal shipping container, and he jolted a second. He was just like, I kind of he like felt it, the tingling of the electricity passing through the ship. And when we, we were just like, we moved past it. We got through our mission, which was with the ROV, recovered the ROV, went inside. And you have half the team celebrating that we found the giant squid and, and the captain and crew very concerned because the lightning had exploded a very expensive radio antenna on the pilot house. 
And luckily we still had comms and we could talk to shore, but, um, uh, the captain said of his multi-decadal decade career out on the sea, he'd only been struck by lightning twice. And that was by far the most damaging, uh, harrowing experience. So anyway, it was amazing. The squid, the lightning, it was really an experience. Wow. So, that, what yeah, a day. That's a day you'll never forget your entire life. I mean, that's yes. probably the whole crew, like a significant scientific discovery met with being struck by lightning, which is my biggest fear on the water. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be struck by lightning. <laughs> it's a, it's a horrible thing. Like, I mean, that's yeah. a serious thing, but you were in a, you were in a big boat, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I get, did anybody else feel it? Only one person felt, felt something. That was the only report I heard. We were all in court in our quarters, either in the shipping container or in the, in the main house. So no one was outside. Um, Nobody felt but sick. There was a water spout and there was like four foot seas. It was like terrifying. Wow. Right. Yeah. But we, were, we were fine. It was a big vessel. So the captain was brilliant. So it was fine. Oh, yeah. That's cool. I've had yeah. some pretty close, close calls. Um, my closest call was probably trout fishing uh, and lightning struck the bank uh, in the Rocky mountains. And both of my clients almost immediately started throwing up. Like they, it made them, made them nauseous and I didn't feel good either, but I don't, I don't know what that was all about. If they were scared or if, if the electricity being that close to lightning, I don't know what it was, but they both threw up and um, I thought that was strange. I hope I never encounter it again because <laughs> I don't, I don't like lightning. I don't like, I, I don't, that. I I don't like lightning. That's a scary thing, man. Lightning. And, and then Florida, you know, is the, is the lightning capital of the world, probably second only probably by a few strikes to where you were. Um, that's a, that's a tough area, uh, for, for Absolutely. storms and lightning and just, you know, stuff. It seems like, um, but that's, that's a, what a day, man. What a day. So what about this net? I'm interested in the net that you're pulling around at, at 4,500 feet or, or thereabouts or really deep. What kind of stuff is coming up in this net? Yeah, great question. Um, slow moving animals mm -hmm. because the squids and the, and the big fish can evade it because mm -hmm. we're pulling it at a very slow speed. You can imagine the drag on a 12 by 12 foot net with extremely fine mesh size that um, the, the pressure that puts on the ship and on the winch system is unbelievable. Um, and, but you're bringing in all the animals that are kind of doing their thing down in the deep. Um, and this is a really good time for me to bring up and to understand how this net works, something called the dial vertical migration. And if you're an angler or if you're just a person who understands the value of the ocean, something you're going to want to know. Basically, the dial vertical migration is the most, it's, it's the largest um, migration on earth of animals. And it occurs every single night. And what's happening is you have all this life in the deep sea of fishes and crustaceans and um, all kinds of animals. And during daylight hours, they stay down really deep where it's still dark and it's uh, very few predators and it's safe. And when it's nighttime, the whole, the life of the seafloor comes up and comes closer to the surface 
to feed because in these shallower waters is where you have more nutrients and you have more animals and things to prey upon. And then when darkness comes, they go back down to the deep. All this to say where you deploy the net is critical if you're going to catch anything. So I told you we did nighttime deployments and it was super valuable because we deploy the net, I think up to about 1200 meters, 1500 meters. um, And that gave um, that was the time of day where the, where all that life would come from what is upwards of two, uh, 2000 meters to 5,000 meters down deep, kind of come all the way up to where we could catch them with the nets. And to specifically answer your question, we found gorgeous and giant, uh, crustaceans, a uh, different species of shrimp, shrimp, so red, like redder than the reddest tomato you've ever seen, mm. uh, shrimp that vomit bioluminescence, uh, <sighs> We saw dragonfish, these incredible and, and anglerfish. If you've seen, yeah, if you've I know what that is. I don't know what a dragonfish is. What's a dragonfish? Oh, it's another species of predatory fish with these giant gnarly teeth and um, these uh, bioluminescent organs all over the body that they use for different things, including uh, for capturing prey. So they're, they're just an, another gnarly and very cool species of fish. Now that anglerfish, it has a. I mean, the reason that they call it an anglerfish, it looks like, I don't know, a stonefish or some sort of weird uh, fish that you would see on the flat, but it's obviously really um, made for deep water. And it has a lure off of its head, like that that it dangles out there like a little worm. And then something comes over to eat that, and then it eats the the other fish, right? Like that's that's how an anglerfish works. So... Um, does it have bio? Does it use the the lure that it has? Does that have bioluminescence in it? It does. Yeah. So that's that's what it's all about. Because like you, there is video of those things doing their doing their thing. I don't know what the shallowest depth that they would live in, but we have video of them doing their thing. And you can't in the video that I've seen, you can't really see that it's it's operating with bioluminescence. I mean, it's just moving the lure around, but. That's that's interesting because that's that's just what they did on the Medusa. I mean, is she she obviously got kind of inspiration from nature, right? Like like you said with the with the jellyfish, but then other things do the, a similar thing, like the anglerfish. Exactly. So instead of a burglar alarm, bioluminescence, say, "Hey, help me!" This is a lure, an attractant for prey to come for them to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was another major finding of the research trip with the anglerfish, because if you can imagine you're a predator and you have hung a, a glowing lure in front of your face to attract prey, one thing you have to make sure is your lure is not illuminating your face mm. because then the prey is going to be like, oh, well, there's a hungry face right, right there. <laughs> and so, um, so basically there's an incredible adaptation of the deep sea where many animals have become super black and super red they both serve the same function to basically disappear into the darkness Hmm. such that and the angler fish so sanka johnson and his student uh alex davis uh, at duke they measured the skin of the angler fish to just see how black black fish skin is so there's different degrees of blackness there's so much de black (laughs) it's not the same have you heard of vanta black uh yeah i think so yeah it's Vanta Black is a Google it. You should Google it. It is a um, material that can be put onto things. It's a super light absorber. It's the one of the, it's the blackest, one of the blackest materials on earth. 
It absorbs over 99% of light. It looks like you've cut a hole into the universe and you're looking into a dark dimension. <laughs> the anglerfish is blacker than Vanta Black, wow. absorbing 99.9% of photons that strike it. So, so you want to talk about the value of studying the deep sea? One thing is now we have a structural, a biological understanding of how some of the blackest material on earth might be manufactured. Hmm. And so how is that, that, that it's man, might be manufactured? Uh, <laughs> well, the biology of basically they're just filled with all this super black pigment melanin. Um, and they have like we have in our skin, but they have a ton more of it. Yeah. And they also have structural components that make it such that they're super absorbers. That science is going on right now. That's incredible. That says a lot about, that says a lot, not, not only about kind of the evolution of, of, of a predator, but it also kind of makes you realize that the prey is also has pretty good eyesight down, down that deep. Because if, if you're talking about, a, a variant shade of black, one shade darker makes an animal more effective or less effective. They're going to progressively get darker and darker and darker, but you're, we're already talking about there's virtually no sunlight where you're talking about, right? Like this is like 1800 meters that, I mean, what's the depth that you're talking about with the anglerfish? Um, let's say, 1200 meters and more to, to, so, I mean, the, the, uh, the, 6, amount, feet. yeah. So 6,000 feet, 6,000 feet deep. And the predator is still concerned with the sh one shade darker and still evolving towards darker and darker and darker. So what that tells me is that the things that they're eating are pretty, sh pretty wary, pretty shy. Like they know they're looking for any, but it's all, but it's pitch black to us. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Vanta black and five shades lighter. It's all black. And anything that was even gray would probably not show up. But the prey can see that. And, and so the, the predator continues to get darker and darker and darker. That's fascinating because, w like, last time we talked... You, it was, we had a fascinating discussion, and if you haven't heard this one, I would strongly recommend that you go back because you've done a lot of um, research on how fish see and fish vision through their eyes, but also we talked about fish vision, uh, you know, in quotes, fish vision through their skin and how, how they can um, adapt to the different color uh, that, that they're surrounding in. And you mentioned uh, a, a mahi-mahi is one that uh, really did that. As you put it down on the deck, it the fish is, is changing color right in front of your eyes. And some of that is that they get super fired up about eating eating a bait. But other, other uh, coloration changes are probably to be a more effective predator. Like right before they go to eat something, they change colors. We all, as an angler, you're like, oh, did you see how fired up he got? But that could be so that it could actually do a better job of, of eating what it's eating. So when, when we're talking about this and is there, are there ever any studies on like the shrimp, the crustaceans, whatever these fish are eating, have we ever studied their, their eyesight? Yeah. In fact, that is a major aim of my current research. Just put out one paper on visual 
the visual abilities of these shrimp and the, the deep sea we collected from this mission and I'm continuing to do this. I mean, you're circling on what is makes this system so valuable. And, and if you're an angler, again, to just a person interested in nature, animals live and die by light in the deep sea, despite that there's no sunlight, bioluminescence rules. And it is pushing these animals to develop either larger and larger eyes or to conserve energy because it's so energy limited down there. Um, it's not a, not a ton of prey. It's very cold. Uh, you know, so, that, so some animals are reducing and reducing their eyes and we're looking at what the value of light is and how it drives these differences. Just like you talked about skin color change in fishes for camouflage, for predation, for all these things, bioluminescence also pro provides camouflage, predation, social signaling. Um, it's just another side of the visual world. Wow. So cool. The bioluminescence is is super cool. And especially when we start talking about it at, at these depths, which virtually only a, a, a very, very small percentage of people in the world are ever going to experience something like you did where you're, you're, you're witnessing bioluminescence at 4,500 feet. I mean, we don't have the technology just on a regular fishing boat. Maybe, maybe one day there'll be a deployable camera that you just drop off your boat and it returns back to your boat and it can show up on your, on your screen. I mean, that seems pretty far off, but you know, 12 years ago, it seemed like a drone was far off. And now every eight-year-old has one and uh, gets it for Christmas. I mean, we could, we could get one of these. I mean, there, the technology might exist one day to where you, you can see what's going on down there. But as of today, you know, people like yourself, um, high-profile science teams with lots of funding behind them are the only people that are experiencing this. Yet, you see bioluminescence like in a place like Key West Harbor, or you see it in, in these bays where you swim and, and every time you take a stroke, there's bioluminescence. And so I, I guess, um, tell us about the role of bioluminescence through the entire ocean, not, not just in these, in these big depths, like what, what role do we place on that? Oh my goodness. Bioluminescence, <laughs> it is critical to ocean life. And, um, yeah, we understand, we believe that it has evolved 40 times independently or more. What, what that means is that across all the different strategies that animals can survive in the ocean, that independently over and over and over, they keep coming up with the solution of bioluminescence. 80% of all bioluminescent animals that are living, live in the ocean. Um, and we see this from microscopic diatoms, the dinoflagellates, like and that's when you're moving your hand through the yeah. water and disturbing yeah. them and they begin to glow all the way to um, uh, big squ uh, squids or can, can be bioluminescent um, and fishes and, and just it's, it's pervasive all over. In fact, in the evenings when operations, when you have break in operations, we'd go on the bow and look over of the bow. And as it was cutting through those waters, you just saw this explosion of blue green light oh, around so the ship. Cool. And, and if you've ever gotten to experience, I mean, you, you said you did, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's super cool. And, yeah. and then you, you also, um, I, I don't know, you just, there, there are places in the world where you go into these bioluminescent bays and you can swim or wade or walk. And every time you take a step, it's just, it just lights up, you know? And, and so I guess it collects whatever, whatever is bioluminescent is collecting in some sort of a, a little bay. And, and there's like some big tourist attractions where you go there and swim at night. And that's, that's like a super cool thing to do. But um, yeah, the bioluminescence is, is interesting. And, and when you haven't ever seen it before, it, it 
it'll take it off, take you off guard, but like you see it in waves and stuff. And it's just like a glowing wave. As you say, it's like disturbing this and they, they fire up or whatever they, they do, whatever the mechanism is, it, it glows. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So when you, when you're studying all these animals and at, at this depth, how, um, how does the swordfish stack up? Like one of the things that I like about the swordfish that I think is really cool is that they can be at that super deep depth and they can come right to the surface. They can even jump out of the water and they can go right back down. And I know that there's all different type of biology with the swordfish and the way that they can do that with their skull and the way they can uh, deal with pressure and everything. Are there a lot of, I mean, you say the entire ocean comes up basically and, and goes back down, but some fish don't do well like that and other fish can do well. Like how, how awesome of a predator is the swordfish to be able to do that throughout the entire water column all the way down to, you know, three or four, 4,000 feet. I don't know how deep they even go. Yeah. Great point here. Um, so they're amazing and they have giant eyes relative to their size, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or billfishes in general have these big, beautiful eyes and no doubt helps them to see in the surface all the way down to these deeper depths where they're probably visually attacking prey on top of the, all the suite of sensory systems they have. Um, not all animals come up. I did say the ocean because it, it, I think about it because it, it truly is so much of the, the ocean um, life is coming up and doing this vertical migration, though some animals don't. Um, and, uh, but the, it's funny you bring up billfishes or the swordfish specifically, that was the second biggest animal that we saw on the Medusa that one time when it was being recovered at about 200 meters depth, we saw this beautiful billfish come in, circle it a few times, nice. check it out and peace out. Right. Yeah. And, um, it was awesome. It was, that was really cool, but yeah, they're, they're formidable predators and just one of the, one of them that are just so suited to survival in the open ocean. Yeah, they're 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 really cool. I like that. So when you're um when you're doing all this research, you mentioned that you um well you mentioned that you would have these breaks and you'd be looking out off the ship. Did the ship have lights and are you able to see like like fish that we know about, you know, doing their thing out there in the middle of the night or or whatever? Yes. Yes. So we, you think about the light surrounding a 135 foot vessel calling in the life of the, of the ocean. I, uh, I'd go out at night and we would see spinner dolphins and spotted dolphins jumping all next to the mm -hmm. ship. And we would see mahi, these dolphin fish, mahi, mahi mm -hmm. and flying fish going through these incredible battles with flying fish being chased up onto the deck of our ship all the time. We would just pick them up and launch them back into the ocean because we're going to die on the ship deck, right? It was phenomenal. So they were always in the light, in the light of the um, the ship, and then during the day operations in breaks. And when I say breaks, it's because we're, we're retrieving one instrument, we're deploying another, we're making decisions to steam to other locations. We would pass sargassum floats, sargassum that would extend for miles and miles and you would just see live living schools of these dolphin fish hmm. um, and some of the crew had had poles on board and and some mahi mahi were caught um and we would just uh and the chef would cook them up 
Yeah, that's what I was it's tacos think, every man. night. It was amazing. I mean, you got flying fish jumping up on the deck and, and Mahi chasing them. I mean, it seems like it'd be pretty pretty ripe to to get a good one. Out definitely. There. Definitely. And um and the, just to see the ecology of it, you we, I, I would look at the sargassum and see baby triple tail. Mm-hmm. I would see all there. kinds of larval fish way out there and you realize that those are little ecosystems that are so critical for our for our fisheries mm-hmm. both inshore and offshore um yeah what can that's, i say that's I mean, one of my favorite a- things when i have somebody uh, on the boat or or my kids or whatever and and you know a lot of times you'll get sargasm that comes in inshore sometimes you're out offshore but like we were on the the sandbar at valhalla which is you know right off marathon and there's lots of sar- sargassum floating by. And so I would just, you know, pick it up and you just start shaking it in your hand. And all of these little tiny shrimp and crabs and little fish and all this stuff, there's this amazing amount of life in a piece of sargassum the size of a coffee cup. And it's, and, and that has drifted way in and all that stuff has come with it. I guess some of it decides, eh, probably not a good idea to stay with this patch. And they're going to stay out there, you know, offshore. But it's fascinating, all the different things that you can see in there and the amount of little shrimp, particularly, that you can see in just a little bit of sargassum. And then you see this, you see one of those those lines like you're talking about that goes for 50 miles, 100 miles. There's so much biomass in that 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 doesn't, I mean, it's no wonder that the fish are there, too, because that's where everything is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I just Googled a photo to remind me the baby triple tails, the larval, tri- and excuse me, juvenile triple tails are bright yellow. Hmm. And why? Because they're probably camouflaged to that bright oh, yeah. yellow sargassum so that predatory birds can't pick them out. I mean, and so again, I am a visual ecologist and light life and color is all connected in our ocean. So that kind of stuff, like seeing the triple tail being neon yellow, like the sargassum was eye opening to me. Yeah. That was cool. I wonder what I wonder at what size they they start to turn color, um, or what size they start to to leave the sargassum and and just float out on their own, because then yeah. then they then they look like uh, like it's not a good um, uh, comment on the state of of plastic in the ocean, but they look just like a black plastic trash bag, and maybe that's you know a bird doesn't want to <laughs> eat that either, you know, but they they do. You 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 drive by one and you're like, was that a was that plastic trash bag or, oh no, it's big triple tail and go back around or a buoy. You know, they sit right on the buoys. We had a weird thing. I wonder if you know anything about this, but we were like triple tail. We've had a couple of really good years in, in the keys. And one of the things that um, I think is responsible for that is the, the size limit changed on the triple tail. And for whatever reason, maybe that's uh, in coincidence with, with other factors, We've had hurricanes. We've had all kinds of stuff go on. But for whatever reason, the last couple of years have been really, really good with numbers and size of triple tail. And especially on the uh, like Cape Sable to uh, Flamingo area and probably further north, but that's where we fish. Um, and we used to just kind of run the, run the crab trap buoys and that's where we would find them. And now they're just floating all over the place. And you can see them from a long way away if you get the right day. But we were catching these. And they all had these red spots pretty much in the same place, kind of behind the eye, up towards the shoulder of the fish. And it was so red that it, I mean, it looked like it was, it was a, a sore, right? Like it looked like they had rubbed it on the bottom or something. 
but it was so red that you would look out there and you would see a red spot from a hundred yards away. And I mean, it was as red as a solo cup and almost every single one of them had it. And almost every one was in the same place. And it wasn't on both sides of the fish. It was usually on the, the one side, which kind of strangely was the side that they would float on. Rich thought they were getting sunburned. I didn't think they, that a fish could get sunburned. I don't, but they just lay there on the surface for hours at a time. I don't know. Maybe it is. But have you ever run into that? Like these, th- these weren't like sores, like a, like bad water quality sores or, or unhealthy fish sores. These were like, I don't know. I'm sure it's probably some sort of spawning behavior that they're, that they're doing and they're biting each other there or something. I don't know what's going on, but it wasn't just like one out of five. It was Almost every single one of them had this. Have you ever seen that or heard about that? I did. I saw photos of that at the time when it seemed to be pretty prevalent. Question for you. Have you ever seen that before those years or since? Well, I I think, but I mean, one of the things is that we saw more triple tail this year than we've seen in a long time. So we saw it way more. I've certainly seen some that have kind of a, a sore area on it and, um, and yes, since since that, I've I've seen them, you know, with the same thing. And I've I've got photos of of all of these things, and uh, I've sent them to some different people, and they didn't know that you know they didn't know what that was. I didn't know. I looked at it closely, a lot of photos of it, and it did appear to be like an abrasion, mm-hmm. kind of just like you mentioned. But the fish otherwise looked pretty good. I did pass that information around to some ichthyologists, uh, Dr. Tracy Sutton of Nova, a couple of people, and. They didn't know explicitly what it was, and it wasn't known, at least these ichthyologists who are researchers who study fish Mm -hmm. biology specifically, they did not believe that that was part of their behavior or behavioral ecology, like Mm -hmm. like, you said, maybe potentially in their spawning behavior. Um, And I reported it to the FWC as something to need to be looked into. Pure conjecture? These animals are now... Um, floating right there. So they're one of their strategies is camouflaging to appear like a piece of seagrass floating mm. next to a structure, right? Or, or whatever they're, they're now um, doing this on artificial structure, artificial buoys, um, crab trap floats, buckets out in the ocean. And you wonder if the fact that they're doing this on artificial structures now, if those sides floating upwards, if they're abrading on what is unnatural artificial yeah. structure. I mean, it could, certainly could be, but you know, you could get, you could get pretty good abrasions from, from a piece of driftwood, I would imagine. And, and I've never seen that happen. I mean, I, I guess plastic would keep a sharp edge longer than driftwood would keep a sharp edge, but I don't know. It was a, it was kind of a, a strange phenomenon. I, I, I did send you those pictures, I think, uh, wondering, mm-hmm. Wondering what that was, but I never, I never came up with any, any conclusive thing about what it is. I mean, like if it was a, like, you know, sometimes I've fished in some places that I certainly wouldn't eat a fish out of, uh, some golf course ponds and, and, uh, and other things that have pollution fertilizer and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you expect that to be in a golf course pond. And sometimes you catch these fish and they've got tumors on them, but the tumors are never in exactly the same place on exactly the same fish. They're spread out all over. You see, you see kind of uh, sores in different places, 
But then you have a, a natural thing where like bass, like a largemouth bass is, is bedding or a, or a trout and, or a salmon. And they're, they're doing something with their tail and they're all doing that with their tail. And their tails all have the same type of abrasions in the same type places and the same type uh, sores on, on their body. And that's because they're, doing, they're all doing something similar. And that's what kind of really made me curious about the triple tail thing is because these, these red spots, they weren't happening through oh, anywhere but the same place on the fish, which made it strange. So I don't I know. know. It was very weird. <laughs> but you guys are the, the eyes on the water, like report stuff like this that you see. Either it's going to help further our understanding of their natural behavior or we're going to catch something that's becoming a problem before it is. A problem, right. Right. So I don't know. The mystery's still out. Yeah. So um, what about your what about your research? Where where do you hope your research will go uh, in the in the foreseeable future, did this did this trip kind of spark your interest or or lead you to some new um, curiosities that you want to study? Yeah, this is a great this is a great question. So um, having this kind of life changing experience coinciding with my new role here at UNCW um, allows me to have a lot of freedom in the kind of the science that's moving forward. By having this experience, I realized the the importance of the deep sea, not only to bring light to things that could be future technologies like these ultra black anglerfish, right? Mm. But also seeing how that's really driving the deep sea drives the health of the of the Gulf of Mexico overall and of our broader ecosystem. I had mentioned a dial vertical migration, animals coming up, consuming prey at night, and then going back down deep. And that is one of the most important parts of the what's called the carbon cycle that exists in nature. Um, so certainly we've heard about too much CO2 in the atmosphere um, and climate change. We And related to that is just having carbon in the environment from all kinds of sources like dead plants, dead decaying leaves, uh, living organisms, abiotic factors like gas emissions, ton of carbon. And then um, basically I've come to realize that the, the Deep sea is so important for when these animals come up, they're consuming so much of this extra organic matter and prey items and so forth. And they're actively transporting all some of that extra carbon, all that down to the deep sea. And the deep sea, in fact, is the largest uh, carbon stored area in nature. And so, really? um, yeah. And, yeah. And is that because just dead things sink or, or is it because of the ocean currents that kind of, uh, pull stuff out there why why is that that seems surprising to me that that would be the the most carbon dense place on the planet you said yes the storage of carbon wow. yes so that there's three ways that we get rid of carbon and that's why the ocean's so important it's phytoplankton so these microscopic plants they're photosynthesizing using carbon using co2 right and then uh so creating their energy products so that uses a ton but Things are floating from the surface down to the deep sea passively. And then, um, but then there's this active transport from this kind of foraging at the surface and then migrating down mm. deep. So foraging wow. at the surface and migrating down deep. And that's the active transport, which is recently predicted to maybe account for half of um, kind of the carbon sequestering that occurs in the ocean. So the ocean's critically important for keeping carbon out of our too much carbon out of our atmosphere and from other sources. 
so there's not too much nutrients and surface waters. And you know, the problems with that, with algal mm-hmm. blooms and all of that. And the deep sea is like just a huge part of that. Um, and, and, um, if you want to talk about, and we can certainly talk about that more, but I'm just, just bringing about like how revelatory this experience was. We also passed the decommissioned Deepwater Horizon platform and, and the Apomatics, it's called Apomatics, is uh was the new rig that's been built out there it's one of the largest in the world and that was you can see the flame coming off of that oil rig where we about a just miles away from where we had seen the giant squid and basically i'm just saying is that we have these amazing elusive animals these super important life intertwined with our energy infrastructure and and just realizing just the importance of us considering different strategies of how we can um, get energy and, and really just consider ocean conservation and how important that is. Um, that's my public service announcement. <laughs> but to answer your question, yes, I'm studying the visual abilities of animals in the deep sea and also continuing to study uh, vision in other ocean life. We've gotten mahi-mahi eyes and flying fish eyes from various work and they're they're in my lab and I would love to compare the visual abilities from that from some of the most colorful fish on the planet and from their predator prey interaction. So, a lot of cool stuff coming down the down the pipeline. Yeah, that's that's super cool. So, um when you move to the, your new university, was there um some studies that were already going on there that you you may add to or are you do you have the freedom to kind of do what you want to do? Yeah, so the beauty of the profession here um, is that I have my own research laboratory, which I'm developing and recruiting graduate students uh, and other other personnel. And UNCW would love to have one of the best marine bio programs in the country. So if you're interested in UNCW, come on. I mean, so interested in uh, marine biology, come on to UNCW. And there's world-class faculty here researching all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not only do I develop my own project projects, but I'm going to get to collaborate with my peers. Oh, that's so. cool. Well, that's yeah. another thing I wanted to ask you about was the was the this this ship that you were on and the collaboration. What what was the team like? What what kind of individuals? I mean, you kind of mentioned you know some some of them, but what? How do how does how does twelve marine biologists get selected for this, and what what is the commonality between them, and who are these people? What do they do? It's a great question, and their names hopefully we can put in the description below, sure. um, just to kind of honor their contributions to this work, which is far greater than my contributions. <laughs> uh, I was being as I was in part being. This is my first time at sea and I had a lot to learn. And though I contributed seriously to the science, there are some, there's some really fantastic scientists on board. The commonality is an interest and passion in the deep, in deep sea biology. And you were invited to bring a certain expertise. So we had people who were experts in cephalopods like the squid. Uh, so Dr. Heather Judkins, a lot of people from Florida University. She's from USF, for example. Um, Dr. Megan McCall, she was, she is a, she's an educator and a science communicator. And so she, she wasn't doing biological research, but she was writing and helping us author mission logs so we could communicate the importance and our discoveries to the public, right? This is federally funded research and the people deserve to know um, what's on. So she was, she was critical in that regard. 
Um, I, I'm not going to go through the 12 names. I have so much respect for all of them, but ichthyologists, uh, uh, crustacean biologists, deep sea biologists, just phenomenal team of experts here. Okay. And um, particularly Dr. Edith Witter with her passion, she devised the Medusa device. And with Nathan Robinson, they deployed it and got that data. She um, heads up the, the, the organization ORCA, Ocean Research Conservation Association running out of central Florida, like space coast area. Mm -hmm. And she is like a tour de force for trying to conserve the Indian river lagoon. And, um, these, these issues of like deep sea conservation. Wow. I'd like stuff. to talk to her. She, she'd be, she is, she'd be a great she guest. Ted she's great. Oh, she's great. She's great. Hook yeah. me up. I'd like to, I'd like to have her on the podcast. That'd be great. Um, especially with the Indian river lagoon. We, we did, um, uh, Blair Wiggins is doing some interesting stuff there with clam, clam um well they're they're like trying to grow clams because they've been fished so heavily that they're growing clams and then 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 kind of putting them back out there millions and millions of them um which should help with the water quality you would you would think i'm sure that it will but that's a that's an interesting thing i'm sure she knows a ton about that as well as lots of other stuff with the indian river indian river's a it's a that's a fish factory too, or it should be, and it has been. Um, but anyway, she'd be a great guest. Oh yeah, that, we got to keep talking about the Indian River Lagoon, and it's a resilient body of water, but it needs needs our uh, attention. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so what's next for you right now? Oh man, well, I got a, a ten month old who's teething, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> let me ask you this: We're so did you, isolated. Did you sleep better at home, or did you get less sleep at home with a with a with a very small newborn, or did you get less sleep sleeping next to the engine on the in the berth of the ship? That is the best question <laughs> I have been asked in like the foreseeable past. I think about this all the time. I got pregnant very shortly after the cruise. Um, and uh, I thought to myself, oh, I slept three hours a day on the ship. I'm cool. I got this. <laughs> yeah. Well, truth be told that, you know, when you're a mom, when you have first have a newborn, you get three hours a day broken up in 15 minute increments plus the train wreck of trauma that is actually birthing a child and the hormone tidal wave that happens after <laughs> you want to you make it sound it. so appealing <laughs> <laughs> it was the most profound experience of my life it, it makes this this expedition seem like nothing um and it has brought more meaning to my life than anything i could have ever imagined and that says something because i've had some incredible experiences but birth moms and all there's so many ways to become a mother it's not just through birth but um they are the real heroes. Okay, so I, no doubt I got about it. Way more sleep on the ship. <laughs> That's the answer to that question. Way more sleep on the ship next to the engine with the muffler with muffler problems. Like <laughs> it still was was uh, tranquil and and peaceful compared to raising a raising a child. Uh, that that child. yeah that says a lot. But I, that was the biggest. I, I don't know if there's a biggest challenge to parenting, but. Man, I sure do remember those days when we had when we'd have two. We had two in diapers at the same time, and man, I was guiding every single day, and just you know, my wife was doing ninety percent of the work, but I was doing some of it, 
and you know you're changing diapers at two o'clock and then three o'clock and then four o'clock and then they won't go to bed and it's like well i'm supposed to get up at five so i guess i'm just up you know you know what i mean it's like you you do know what i mean and and i have some friends that are that are young now and they're going through it and you know they'll tell me oh man i didn't get any sleep last night and i start thinking wow, that must be terrible. And then I think, oh, I did that. Yeah. I've just blocked it out. I've just, I've just blocked it out. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I remember it, you know, <laughs> my friend, my friend tells me, he's like, man, sometimes I go to like, like to the beach or somewhere and I see these people with these little kids. It just makes me nervous. And I'm like, well, you got three of your own. And he's like, oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Like that's what we were doing, <laughs> but it, it goes away. I think that that's one of our one of our uh, preservation uh, strategies that that is built in is that that women forget about exactly what childbirth is like pretty pretty quickly because I think that if that if that was always in your head we would have have stopped being a species a long time ago like childbirth is 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 it's a big deal. <laughs> like it's a really big deal. And then, then that first year, that's it's a big, a big deal. deal. And, but somehow, somehow your brain just is like, well, I mean, there's so many positives that overcome all of the, all of the, if you call those negatives, whatever, it's just part of the experience, but there's so many positives and they certainly outweigh any of that. But still, you know, you, 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 uh, jump across, uh, something and you break your femur. Chances are you're never going to do that same jump again. You're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go kind of around this time. You know, I don't want to break my femur again. I'm never going to forget that. But somehow we forget like all, what all went into to, to, you know, raising a child. And then we do it again and again and again. And you just go back to it. But it's a preservation. It's amazing. I think it's a preservation strategy and it's working. It's working. But uh, it well, congratulations. Working. Congratulations on your new family. And that's that's just so awesome. That's been the best Thank thing you. that ever happened in my life. And it sounds like it's the same for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm real happy to have you back on the podcast and want to um, have you anytime. Anytime you do something cool and you want to talk about it, you're more than welcome. You uh, you have a tremendous amount of information and and uh, our audience wants to know about it. Like all that stuff. Super cool. Super cool. Especially the giant squid. That's that's cool. I, Can I, don't I give know. one parting fishing sure. advice from my experience Please. out there? There were two days that we had the nets out, the ROV out, and we saw no life. Zero. And you know what happened? Mm. We accidentally steamed into what was called the loop current. Have you heard of this? Mm, a little bit. Yeah, I know a little bit about it. But it's tell a super, us. It's a super important current. Uh, that moves from the Yucatan Peninsula south of Mexico, Yucatan Peninsula, around the Gulf of Mexico and creates a gyre. And then some of that hot water goes out through the Florida Strait. It's very warm water relative to the Gulf of Mexico waters and animals don't like it. So from the deep sea to surface waters, I've read about tuna and other pelagics, they steer clear of the, the loop current. The loop current moves continually. It's a dynamic process. So to my friends out there who are steaming out 100, 200 miles to fish, look at some online data to see where the loop current is. Because if you're fishing in it and you won't know because it's huge, you'll be like in the middle of it, you won't know, you are very unlikely to catch anything. Hmm. Well, I seem to have a lot of spots that are somehow within the loop current because some days you go there and you're like, <laughs> there is nothing here. There was stuff here 
before. I know I'm in the same spot, but uh, yeah, we need a t-shirt. That's a great t-shirt. I must be fishing in the loop current. <laughs> uh, only a few people would get it, but I, I'd pay for that shirt. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll sell that's one. I'll sell one copy, my- one t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, that'll do it for today, but thanks for coming on and sharing that experience and, and the giant squid and all that stuff. Super cool. And uh, we'll definitely have you back. Definitely have you back. Congrat- congratulations on your family, but also this new position. That's great. Good shot. Thank you, Tom. Right. I look forward to next time. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back with another awesome guest next week. All right. See you. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.